touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. One, welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today's episode comes to you courtesy of a little listener mail. <laughs> that's, that's going old school, Lauren. Now, we don't have the klaxon necessarily unless Noel decides to get super creative with this one. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking over. He's giving me nothing back. Can, nothing. Nothing at we all. We could put in a very quiet klaxon, yeah. maybe. Right, um, right. A gentle klaxon. Longtime listeners know what I'm talking about. You guys who joined fairly recently... Let's just say we spared you. But anyway, this listener mail actually came from Valerie, who sent us an email and said, I would like to suggest an episode on city water systems. I think how different countries are creating efficient water systems and also the system that is used in Las Vegas could be interesting for a podcast. So many people, so little potable water. What is in our future? And we agree this would be an awesome episode. So we suggested it to other people, but they said we should do it. So, yeah, weird. Or so, actually, I, I guess we, we, we have talked about this a tiny bit over on Forward Thinking, which yep. is a thing that I think we've been saying a lot lately on the show. Yeah, yeah. The, the Forward Thinking episodes are, in a lot of ways, very closely related to tech stuff because we're looking into the future. Now, not all of Forward Thinking's topics are technology topics. Some of them are right. social or cultural or uh, have are more science oriented than tech oriented. But uh, if you enjoy this show, chances are you'd enjoy that show, too, especially since two of the three hosts of that show are this show. So just saying, we'll we'll, we'll let you do the math on that one. Um, but yeah, so so we wanted to do this episode on the infrastructure systems that exist uh, today and historically and some of the the. Things that we are thinking about for that incredible and slightly terrifying future. Right. So first of all, let's talk about why is it challenging to get clean water? Um, lots of reasons. Lots, lots of reasons. Uh, r- rain doesn't fall everywhere all the time that people want to live. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, uh, w- rivers don't flow everywhere all the time that people want to live. Sometimes river courses can change over time. Yeah. Um. Uh. The the, the climate is kind of changing. That's that's a thing that's happening. Um, yeah. And basically, even though it's really expensive to create and upgrade infrastructure, um, it's way more expensive to repair damage caused by failed infrastructure right. and or to just not let people have water. Um, we don't last all that long without that stuff. Yeah. So. When we get a little further into this episode, you're going to realize, like, you know, some of the what some of the systems out there. Are a little, uh, little on the elderly side. Uh, yeah, and really not, not upgrading your infrastructure is like playing chicken with entropy. Yep. Cause systems break down. They do. And if you it's scientific. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some of these systems look like it's, you know, just a true mishmash because, you know, as we know, c- cities grow over time. Some of them don't. Some of them decrease in size. But in general, you see population way, growth. They, they change. Exactly. And, so, and even if they do decrease, that's another thing that you have to right. you have to adjust for. Yeah. So you get you get all these different types of add-ons to existing infrastructure. That means that not everything is the same. You might have uh you know four or five different generations of pipes in one city's infrastructure and, th- you know, the more complexity you add, the more likely something somewhere along the line is not going to work the way you had anticipated. In other words, stuff's going to break <laughs> and then you got to fix it. But let's let's take a look back uh, way back. Yeah, because a lot of the the basic principles upon which we have based even our most modern systems on go back to 
How far? Roman times, really. Yeah. Yeah. So the Romans, you may have heard about the Roman aqueducts, and you might think, uh, is that a hockey team? No, it's not. The, I would watch that hockey team. Yeah, I would too. Centurions on, on skates would be awesome. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the, the aqueducts were a system of channels, waterways that would bring water from distant places to Rome because Rome was a city that was growing much too large to be supplied by the local water sources. And, um, uh, most, the, the most famous aqueducts are the ones that you see, they look like bridges from a distance. They're mm-hmm. elevated. They're built on these, these stone columns. Uh, but they're not bridges for road travel. They're actually water bridges. They allow water to flow. And the reason why they're elevated is because in order to make a pathway from the water source, the reservoirs that the Romans were using, it sometimes meant that they had to cross things like valleys. Well, it's really easy to go down a valley if you've got water. It's hard to make the water go back up the other side of the valley. All right. It would have to be going pretty fast because the way that gravity works, <laughs> most most of the time things want to go downwards and right. not upwards. You would just have created a river in that valley as opposed to making the water go across. So by doing this aqueduct, if you could have a a kind of continuous grade so that it was always going a little lower in, in uh, elevation than the earlier sections, you could induce water to flow. You're letting gravity do the work for you. So the Roman system had all these aqueducts, and, and most of them were actually channels that were cut underneath the ground. Uh, there there are quite a few uh, aqueducts that you can see that are built up, and they're amazing feats of engineering. But I think even more amazing to me anyway oh, yeah. is the thought of all these Tunneling. under, yeah, these channels that have been cut into the living rock <laughs> so that water can flow through it. Um, and so the water would flow all the way toward Rome and then they would direct it into giant cisterns, which are just enormous containers, right? A big old container that can hold water. And these cisterns would be in the tallest areas around Rome where the water could still flow into. Uh, right. And then a network of, I believe they were using lead pipes yeah. at the time, which was it turned out to be problematic. And but... They were a little blind to the problems oh, at the time. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, what, what would direct the water from from those cisterns into into homes and fountains and yep. other buildings? Yep. They would uh, they would run these pipes down through the various parts of Rome so that you could get access to clean water uh, easily. So you wouldn't have to trek far, like, you know, because before this kind of system, the basic way you got water was you walked to the closest source of water. You took your bucket. Yeah. And you went to some water. Yep. Whether that was a river or a lake or a well, you know, something like that. And then you would bring that back. And when you were out, you had to go back out again. This was trying to make that much more accessible. Now, uh, in total, there are about 260 miles worth of aqueducts around the city of Rome, which is pretty phenomenal. Not, not bad for a few thousand years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, you know, it was a pretty effective system. They let the gravity do the work for them. They didn't have to build uh, lots of pumping stations, although they did have some. But they didn't have to have as many as you would think they'd need because they were letting gravity do most of the work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact... That basic idea of letting gravity do a lot of the work for you 
still applies today. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been in buildings in New York where that's basically how the water pressure works. They've got a water tower on top of the building. And yep. um, yeah, depending yeah. On, on what level you're on, you get better water <laughs> right. pressure because of how far it's falling. My favorite is when you use the uh, the sinks in this building and occasionally you get the sputtering noise where it sounds like a... A, a giant ball of cobras is just on the other <laughs> side of the faucet. Um, you must use the special sink. I don't actually get that. I'd show you, but you can't go into that room, Lauren. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about a couple of other uh, pre-industrial civilizations besides the Romans, because you'd think, well, were they the only ones who came up with this idea? And the answer to that is no. No, uh, other other civilizations knew that gravity worked. Yeah, yeah. They didn't necessarily know the mechanism of it or what it was, but they knew that, hey, if you drop something, it falls. Yep. And uh, that if you if you look at water, it runs downhill, not uphill. So, you know, drawing those conclusions, you figure out I need to get water to this place where a lot of people live because it turns out we need water. London was one of these places. London built uh, what is called the Great Conduit which was another massive channel that uh, that brought water into London, actually to Cheapside, to cisterns in Cheapside that were then hooked up to other cisterns around the city. And if you were rich, you could afford to pay to have pipes brought into your home so that you would have running water in your home. Wow. If you weren't rich, sometimes you would try and tap into a neighbor's pipes, which could get you arrested for stealing water. Yeah, I imagine that that also must with the system in in ways that made nobody happy. Yeah, yeah, nothing like having an enormous leak appearing yeah. where you did not expect one to. Um, but yeah, th- this was something that London started working on in the uh, in the 13th century, in the mid 1200s. Uh, I heard that Constantinople. Constantinople, not, not Istanbul. Istanbul. Why they changed it? I can't say. Uh, but Constantinople also, yeah, they they created a man-made river. So, again, kind of like the aqueduct system of Rome, but more of a river than an aqueduct. Uh, and it was allowed to carry water both above and below ground. They had sections where, uh, again, it was they had cut channels into the ground and the water would flow through there. And it was... Uh, Carrying water from about 250 kilometers away from the city, like the the, oh, the oh. water source for the city was 250 kilometers away. Now, when you look at this, uh, like when you look at most cities, like you look at the the if you look at a map of ancient civilizations, for example, and you look at where the cities are located, they're usually right around water sources, fresh water sources, yeah. because that was the most effective way of doing it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's only fairly recently that we've gotten to a point where if you live really far away from freshwater sources, you can build a large city. Uh, we've had right. smaller, you know, smaller uh uh towns and villages and populations, nomadic tribes, things like that that were able to exist on smaller sources of fresh water. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if you if you want to have a city of any size, you need access to a lot of water. Uh, right. And this can this can be a very large problem. Um, for, for example, Singapore, up until very recently, had to basically import all of their water from Malaysia. Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's ended up springing up a whole industry that I'm going to talk about in another few minutes here. But um, so. So, OK, Um in terms of in terms of our modern water right. infrastructure. Okay. You want to you want to talk about that a little bit. You you're tired of the ancient world. I understand Lauren. <laughs> I understand you don't want to dwell on the past. I I couldn't agree more, mostly because my notes are out. 
I'm done with all the ancient stuff. I don't have any other cities I can talk about, Lauren, so I am ready to move into the future with you. Boldly. Yes. And forcibly. <laughs> Where no man has gone before. No, no one. No. Sorry. Sorry. Forgot about the next generation. I'm an no, old no, school kind of guy. Lot, lots of people are in the, these are modern times. That's not, no, <laughs> it's not like no one has ever been here. We're here. That's right true. Now. Okay. So let's talk about your, your basic modern water system. It's not that different in the sense that most of them tend to still rely heavily on gravity. No pun intended. I didn't realize I was making one <laughs> until I was done. Uh, not, not all of them do. Some water systems use, uh, electric pumps and will just pump the water to maintain the right kind of water pressure for their populations. But more frequently than not, you're going to see water towers, particularly right. things like small towns. You'll, you'll usually see as you're going around the outskirts, you see that enormous tower and you think, wow, uh, you know, what is the point of that? Why? Do you have this big tower just holding water there? And if you're in a city, like you said, Lauren, you might see on the rooftops different uh, uh, water buildings, towers. individual water towers. Yeah. yeah. So what is going on here? Well, it's the same principle. You put the water uh, at an elevated location. And by that elevated location, the weight of the water is providing the pressure you need to provide the however many households that water tower serves or businesses or whatever uh, with the right amount of water pressure so that when you turn on the faucet, water comes out. Right. Now, um, your basic water tower is uh, able to hold somewhere between, I don't know, 250,000 gallons of water to maybe 500,000 or more gallons of water at a, at a time. So big capacity. Keep in mind that your average swimming pool holds... Fifteen to twenty thousand gallons of water, so way okay. more water so pretty, than pretty, pretty big, not yeah. small. Got it. Big, lots of water, and um, uh, usually they are attached to some sort of well, always are attached to some sort of pumping station, which can pump water back up into the tower, as well as usually provide direct pressure to the community. So the way this tends to work is one of two ways. You can either pump all the water up into the water tower until it reaches a certain level, and then you just stop. You turn the pump off. That way you can serve uh, energy that way. Mm -hmm. The gravity will pull the water down, and for every foot that that water is elevated, you get 0.43 pounds per square inch of pressure. Most cities have between 50 and 100 PSI, so your water tower's height is going to determine what that water pressure is. Okay. So you've got the pump turned off. The water's in the tower. When you, Lauren, decide you want to have a tasty drink of water and you turn on the faucet, then that allows the water from that water tower to come down a little bit. It's pushing all the water through the pipes. You get water through your faucet. Everyone's happy. Yay. Assuming that all the infrastructure is working properly, right? Uh, yes. So that is that is the general assumption if the water comes on. <laughs> now, Lauren, let's say that you decide you want a glass of water the same time as Everyone else in town has decided to take showers, flush the toilet, you know, turn the faucet on outside for no reason whatsoever, water the lawn, wash the car, etc. It's enough so that the water in the water tower has gone down to a level where it is no longer able to supply that pressure. That's where the pump kicks in. The pump is able to continuously supply more water so it's reaching the right pressure. It also, when people start to calm down and decide they're not going to waste so much water anymore or drink it or whatever, it can start to refill that water tower until it reaches the optimum level again. Now, there are other systems where the water tower is essentially a reserve unit. So the water pump is taking water from a reservoir. which could be a lake. It could be a river. It could just mm -hmm. be an artificial reservoir. 
It's taking water from that reservoir and pumping it directly to the homes. And then any time that the demand outstrips the capacity of the water pump, the water tower is activated and supplements it. Okay. So either way, you have kind of the symbiotic relationship between the pump and the tower. Now, with the tower, the nice thing is, because of gravity, you don't have to add extra energy into the system to get the water to where it needs to go. You don't have to have all these pumping stations along the lines to keep the pressure at the right level. So, you know, we think about that for things like telephone lines. When we talked about the telephone system, how they had to have relay stations so that uh-huh. they could boost the signal throughout. Same sort of thing with water pressure, right? If eventually, if you're talking about a long enough uh, uh, pathway, that pressure starts you're going to, to you're, you're going to lose motion due to yeah, uh, yeah. resistance along the path. And you've got yeah, and you've just got too much space to fill. So um, these are ways of getting around that. So and with the gravity working for you, you have to spend less energy overall. Pumping the water up into the tower is is more energy efficient because you're just filling it up to where it needs to be, and then you stop, mm-hmm. as opposed to consistently. Pumping. pumping water to the entire population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in general, that's how your basic water tower works. Uh, it's pretty neat stuff, actually. I mean, I, I know that <laughs> it's it, it, it's a really simple system, but I mean, but that's why it's yeah, it's, it's, so it's neat. elegant. Yeah, and it's, yeah. Now, uh, of course, that's not how everyone gets their water, but uh, you know. right when you're further out from cities, you you you're gonna either need your own well. Yeah. Or um, which you are probably going to need to use a pump in order to access. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, granted, you could think about the well pumps that are, you know, the old style pump handle where you're literally Manual pumping, pumping. It. Mm-hmm. But more frequently, we have electronic uh, pumps now. Yeah. Um, here in the U.S. alone, we've got some uh, 16 million private wells and we drill another 500,000 every year. Yeah. And uh, so if you live outside of a city... Um, which I used to, you know, I used to live out pretty far out there. Then you may be using a <laughs> here in Atlanta, living like five miles from downtown is considered a little bit outside the city. But I'm sure well, I live in the city now. <laughs> I'm within the city limits. So anyway, um, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. Actually, outside where uh, you can see the stars and stuff like that, and cows mm-hmm. and, and bison occasionally, um, which were totally domesticated. We don't have wild bison in Georgia, as far as I know. Anyway, uh, if you live out in the, in the sticks, as I would say, uh, which I used to, then you might have your own well, or you might have a communal well of some sort. But the way this works is you end up digging down. See, there's this thing called the water table that exists underground, and it's pretty much everywhere, more or less, but you have to dig at different depths depending upon where you are. Uh, right, uh, depending on, on how much rainfall a location gets and... Um, yeah, other runoff, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know, lots of things will determine exactly how far down you would need to go and also the quality of the water. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Right. But if you happen to live someplace that has good aquifers, like freshwater aquifers that are at the, you can access at the water table... Uh, you can dig a hole and then eventually, you know, you should hit water. And so, for example, uh, a shallow well might be 25 feet or, or less, uh, down. And with that, you could use what's called a jet pump. What does a jet pump do? So jet pump, well, I mean, what it does is it pumps water, but uh, the way it does it <laughs> Thanks, is kind of cool. You're welcome. We're learning. Yay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it uses electricity and it uses a little bit of water that you already put into the pump. It's called, you know, to prime to the prime pump. To prime it, right? Yeah, it's drive water is what's called. So 
It's got a little jet, a little, think of it like a nozzle that you would put on the end of a hose. Okay. And, you know, by reducing the size of the pathway that the water can go through, you also increase the pressure. You put a little water in it to prime it. You turn it on. It starts to emit this water at high pressure. It starts to create a vacuum. Oh, right. D- due to the jet of water flowing out, it creates yep. suction inside the tube. Right. And the tube goes down into the well until it hits where the water is. Uh, actually goes further down than that, obviously. But then the water gets drawn up the tube. Uh, through that vacuum. Yep. And then it gets sent into a holding tank of some sort. So uh, this isn't, uh, you know, the wells that are being used are not something that, you know, when you turn on the faucet, the well kicks in and then you have to wait a while and the water comes out. The, the pump continues to work until the water tank reaches its optimum level and then it turns off and then it'll come back on when it. Uh, when the water's depleted a certain amount. Mm, so that you've kind of got your own little personal mini water tower. Yeah. Uh, and, and since since you're not necessarily using gravity, I mean, you probably don't have your water tank 40 feet above your house. Probably not. Yeah. So since you probably don't have that, uh, what it uses instead in order to create the right amount of pressure that you're going to need for your water. To flow. Uh, yeah. They have uh, an air bladder that's inside the water tank. Oh, okay. So it's inflated. And as you put water in, it compresses that bladder. The bladder's pushing against the water. Um, and then once the water has hit the right level, when you turn on the faucet, the bladder is pressing against the water. The water comes out at the right pressure until the bladder has, you know, extended about as far as it can. And then the water tank needs to be refilled by the pump. So that, that's your basic system. Although there are other ones too. If you have a, if, if the water table is deeper, then a jet pump may not be strong enough to create the vacuum necessary to pull the water up that height. Because the higher you go, the heavier that, you know, the more the, the more, more energy work, you need. Right. Yeah, the mm-hmm. more more exactly the more work you have to do. And so you might have something called a double drop jet pump or even a submersible pump where the pump itself is under the water as opposed to at the top of the well. And in this case, you would just have another kind of approach to drawing water up this very long tube. And again, filling up a tank just as you would with the uh, the jet pump. So those are the other ways of getting water, uh, you know, the, the basic ways that you would see in today's world, at least in the United States. Uh, right, right. And, well, you know, the, a lot of this technology and a lot of our infrastructure really has has been in place for for over 100 years. Um, yeah. A lot of our water towers, um, distribution lines, sewer lines, storage facilities and stuff like that were built uh basically immediately following World War II. So, I mean, so all of this is is pretty simple. I mean, personal pumps have have developed a little bit and changed mm-hmm. a little bit uh in the following decades, but but this technology has has not changed in a long time. Right. Is and, what we're saying. And yet, we've added lots of stuff to it. So, this is where I'm talking about how, you know, the pipes that were used 40 years ago are made of different stuff and are of different sizes than the pipes that were used 30 years ago, which are different from 20, which are different from 10, which are different from today. So you've got this system where nothing is homogenous at all. And and, there, and the lifespans of all of these different products uh, can can depend a lot on the materials that they were made from and how, uh, how carefully they were installed. Not to mention the environment itself. Oh, absolutely. Like if you are in a place like uh, the Great White North... Shout out to all of our Canadian fans, <laughs> eh? Uh, then, you know, they have to withstand much colder temperatures than, say, down here in hot Atlanta. Right. I, I hate myself for saying it like I, that. I didn't even notice for half a second, which makes me hate myself more. Well, um, yeah. yeah. But, all right. 
Okay, so so in that's that's in the U.S. In other parts of the world, I mean, we get we get not um not by global standards a whole lot of water per capita here, right? But we we certainly get a lot more than many other places do. Yeah, and there are other places that have to get a lot more creative with how they manage water, how they get water, and how they distribute it. Right. So, for example, um, well, you know, I could talk about Abu Dhabi really quickly. So. Now, Abu Dhabi is is a, a city that or the, the area of Abu Dhabi is so large and so populous, it could not have supported that population uh, uh, like a, a century ago because the the water management system just wasn't there. Uh, the area around Abu Dhabi has only two freshwater aquifers. Uh, all the other aquifers are um, salty. That's it's like seawater mm-hmm. and that there's no fresh water otherwise to access. So. Uh, they do have wells that they've um, drilled down so that they can pull up some of the water from the freshwater aquifers, but that's almost exclusively used in agriculture. Uh, usually almost 70% of freshwater of, of any given community is going to be used for agriculture. Right. So in this case, what they've decided to do in order to supply their population with freshwater is build a lot of desalination plants. And we've talked about those in a, a previous episode of Tech Stuff. Go back and search if you want to look at uh, our discussion, we actually got to speak with an expert about desalination plants and how there are different methods of removing salt from seawater so you can make it drinkable. Um, So that was a creative way that they have uh, used to meet the needs of their population. Uh, Right. And, you know, most of the United States uh, water infrastructure was was built up in the midst of the industrial era when everyone was starting to move from urban areas or move, I'm sorry, from from rural, rural areas, areas to, to urban, urban areas. areas. Yeah. And um, those kind of population shifts that, that we saw in the early to mid 20th century are just happening now in a lot of developing countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the third world center, for, for example, estimates that there's two billion people without access to safe drinking water in Asia alone. That's incredible. Yeah, it really just just depends on on your your rainfall, your river access, your groundwater, all all of those natural resources. Um, and and for for another example, um, Iceland. Uh, okay, let's let's if you're talking about the cubic meters of fresh water per capita okay. per, per per person in a country, mm-hmm. um, Iceland has about five hundred thirty three thousand. Okay, um, cubic meters of water, fresh water. Wow, per capita. Wow. Um, okay, Bahrain, for example, has three. That's, not, that's not, disparity. Not 300,000, just just three. That's, yeah. So obviously you have to get creative with the way that you are able to uh, access and distribute water. Uh, right. And then after you have accessed and distributed that water, um, you know, most people use water to do some stuff and then they want it to sort of go away. Right. So we need to talk about how to reclaim that water and what you do with that water once you've used it. You know what? I got a great idea. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, and we'll come back and talk about that. Excellent. All right. So just before the break, Lauren, you brought up a great point. Uh, You know, we don't just use water to drink, obviously. We use it for all these other sorts of things, whether it's taking a shower or washing dishes or in the toilets. There are a lot of different ways we use it. Uh, We might use it to water our lawns. And then once we use it, what? Do we, what happens then? I mean, it goes down the drain for most of these cases, apart from the watering the lawn example. But, you know, it goes down the drain. What happens then? 
Well, okay. So, so following this entire gravity model, yeah. um, most of the time, uh, waste, w- water waste facilities are going to be located in some kind of low-lying area. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I and mean, it makes sense again, because that means you let the gravity pull the water where it needs to go. So you don't have to have pumping stations to keep wastewater going. Cause then you're spending energy just to get rid of wastewater. So yeah, you've got, uh, you know, the drain systems, whether they're on the roads or whether they're in the, uh, they're in your house, whatever. Uh, these all kind of lead to a water treatment facility. Uh, you've got pipes, you've got sewer tunnels, all that fun stuff. You've got the manholes that allow people to have access in case mm-hmm. they need to uh, to do maintenance on any of the system. And uh, it's really good, by the way, to have these treatment facilities instead of just dumping wastewater into uh, into natural rivers, for example, sure. because that will therefore, um, you know, al- allow you to not totally pollute your natural rivers. Right. And also uh, not give a terrible uh, statement to anyone who lives downriver of you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Have um, fun drinking, stupid. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a great message. OK, so so the basic the basic format of a water treatment facility. All right. So um, the, this. All right, guys, you know, I'm going to give you the straight poop on this. <laughs> There's going to be some potty talk here and. uh you know, it's something that we need to know about. All right, first you got a screen. Okay, once you get to the water treatment facility, uh-huh. you have you have different levels of uh, water purification depending upon the uh, sophistication of the facility. Sure, Th- this will occur in several steps. The first is a physical step where yeah. where you are just just literally Screening. using screens yeah, to, to take solid waste out of your water. Yeah, as much of the solid waste as you can. Now mm-hmm. these screens aren't aren't incredibly fine, so that they take out all part- particulate matter, but they get a lot of it. A lot of the larger solids. Uh, now, the water that is left from that first screening process moves into ponds or pools, and then it's allowed to sit there for a while so that sediments in the water start to settle into the bottom of that pool. Uh, you then end up removing that waste. Uh, that tends to be about half of all the waste that's in that water at that moment. So it's still there's still quite a bit uh, suspended within the water itself, but you get rid of about half of it that way. Uh, that waste you will then dispose of either by putting it in a landfill or maybe in an incinerator. I keep hoping for these plasma uh, generators so yeah. that you could use it. Because you know, any organic matter you could turn into syngas, mm-hmm. which would synthetic gas. That would actually be a fuel. But yeah, Mr. We, Mr. Fusion, make it go. You know, we're still not there yet. So, uh, so you've gotten rid of about 50% of the waste. That means you still got 50% left in the water. Uh, you then allow that water to be treated with various chemicals, mainly chlorine, which is used to kill off a lot of harmful bacteria. Uh, right. For your for your very basic water treatment, you can then treat it with chemicals to get rid of um, anything really nasty that's still living in there. Yeah. You might use a little bacteria first to eat up any organic matter and then uh-huh. use the chlorine to kill off everything. But then at that point, you essentially discharge it, assuming that's a simple water treatment plant. But there are more sophisticated ones that have more steps. Would you like to know about the other steps? Sure. I think that they involve more bacteria, don't they? They do. Yeah, you start off with some aerated tanks that hold the water and the bacteria, and those bacteria end up consuming almost all of the waste inside that water. In fact, around 90% of it. And that's that's just really cool to me that they that they use gross stuff to eat the gross stuff yeah, that they don't want. Right. And then um but 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 then you need to get rid of the that first gross stuff. Right. Yeah, you move the water over into settling tanks and then you remove that bacteria. You can treat the water again with chemicals to do that. 
and by this time you are down to just uh, like 10% of all the waste that you had had in that water to start with. Then you can treat it with other chemicals to remove stuff like nitrogen and phosphorus, which tend to build up. Use the chlorine to kill off any of the remaining bacteria. And then you discharge the water into whatever, you know, usually it ends up going through some canal systems and into another river eventually. But it, at this point, it's, uh, it's, you know, clean water. I don't know that you would necessarily want to stand at the end of it with a glass and say yum yum, but Maybe, maybe not, but, but it's at least, you know, okay for being released into the environment relatively as wastewater goes. Yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, I mean, there's, I want to address this because it's just one of those things that occurred to me. I don't mean to suggest that water can hold on to certain attributes just because it came into contact with something. Because that's not the case. It's, well, I mean, really, technically, we're all, we're all running around drinking dino blood. Right. So yeah. So that that's your basic approach is essentially going through this multi step process mm. to remove and, waste. And and by basic we mean this is actually very complex, very expensive to build these facilities, and uh, and the result of of decades of of research yeah, and filtering technique. There's actually, if you want to see a more uh, detailed approach to how this is done in a real system. There's a, a fun little documentary that's on YouTube. It's uh, Before Faucet, After Flush, I believe is what it's oh, called. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you were talking about that earlier Yeah, it's today. about the Chicago water system, which is phenomenal. They have, like, at least at the time of the documentary, they had the world's largest water treatment facility. And they get their, their water from the Great Lake. And uh, it's interesting. They have all these tunnels that are underneath the lake that allow lake water to go through. And they, it's a really cool uh, documentary. It's like seven minutes long. So mm-hmm. I'll, we'll link to it because um, if you want to see more of a step-by-step process and kind of see animations of what is going on, the stuff that I just described, uh, it has all of that. It's really good. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, so not, not everywhere in the world has these, these wonderful treatment facilities. Yeah. And, um, and it can be a, a huge problem for the spread of diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like remember how I said that there's estimates of, of 2 billion people in Asia without safe drinking water? Yeah. There's an estimated additional 3 billion there without safe, uh, sanitation and water waste management. Right. So on top of the fact that there are billions of people who don't have access to an adequate water or waste management system, there's, an environmental concern with any type of water system. Uh, right. Well, anytime that you're moving around a large natural resource like water, you're you're going to be you're going to be screwing with the natural system of things. Right. And I mean, which which is on purpose and which is good because it lets people um survive. But, right. But bad in that you can really mess with the ecology of a local area. Yeah. You need to take into consideration everything from. The water that you're taking, like wherever the reservoir happens to be, whether it's a lake or a river or even an artificial reservoir, where is that water coming from? How is it affecting the uh, ecosystem of the area from which you are taking? And then everything from the amount of water that people are using, because uh, water is not, you know, you may have seen things on television or your little reminders in school about don't waste water. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of that has to do with not just the fact that there's... You know, uh, there's a, a it, it's a renewable resource, but there's only so much of it any particular region has at any particular time. It's also an energy concern. Oh, absolutely. Because it takes a lot of energy to gather this water from the source. And even using gravity, we're still talking about having pumping stations, things like that. So the more water you use, the more energy has to be uh, uh 
consumed in order to continue that that supply of water. Uh, right here in the U.S., I think that the the, the EPA reported that um, we use three uh, to four percent of our countrywide energy getting water where it needs to go, and um, and that's that's on a national level, and that's only because most of that is dealt with by municipal systems where water treatment is usually the the largest consumer of energy within yeah. any given community. Right. So, I mean, clearly there are a lot of concerns for using water wisely. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the, the whole treatment process and how that water, once treated, is then introduced back into the environment. All of these things have an impact. And mm-hmm. if the if the treatment facility isn't truly sophisticated or if it's not adequate, then you could be making a, a catastrophic effect on your environment, which in, in turn can either directly affect the population that's getting the water in the first place or other populations that are downstream or nearby. Oh, right. Yeah, this this can also get really political. Um, yeah. In fact, even within the United States, it can get political. I know that sounds kind of crazy, especially to people who may live outside of the U.S. and they think of it as a nation. But we're divided up into states, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's a perfect example. Lauren and I, we live in Georgia. Uh, we have two states that border us that use very similar sources of water, the same source of water, uh, at least for certain regions, Alabama and Florida. They all are using water that, that is coming from come downstream from us. Yeah, from the Chattahoochee, actually. And. Alabama and and Florida often are um, competing for those resources along with Georgia. So if Georgia decides to do something on a state level that's going to affect that water source, it impacts these other states and you get this kind of tension. This is within one country where. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in, internationally, it can get pretty messy. I, just, just for example, most of Iraq's water supply originates in rivers in Turkey. Which means that for, for Iraq to get the water that it needs, conservation efforts have to begin in a whole other country that they might not be agreeing with very much at the time. Right. So if you have one country that says, well, you know, well, we'll conserve as much as we need to for our needs, but why should we be considered and why should we worry about your needs? You're, you don't, you're not part of our country. That's sticky. That's, yeah. that's, you know, I mean, obviously it raises up very tricky ethical questions and, you know, you may not be at all, uh, able to affect those the answers to those questions if you aren't in that particular country. So, you know, it, it does get pretty mm, sticky, I will say. Uh yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different problems that that really go on with uh with with, with water and and how we're going to kind of bring these old methods of of getting it places and treating it into the future because you know we're the population is growing we're we're certainly not going to have less need for water anytime soon yeah so some things that we can look into are things like using uh, uh different approaches for agriculture which would obviously put less of a demand on our water use if we're using 70% of fresh water for agriculture and we can come up with plants that either need less water or we come up with uh, farming techniques that don't use as much water, because I mean, there, there are other byproducts to this too, right? If you have an enormous field that is treated with various types of herbicides, pesticides, that kind of thing, and you're using massive amounts of water to, to distribute farm, those, mm-hmm. you get runoff of yeah. all those chemicals that can then enter the local water table, and that can be a big problem. So, I mean, you can see that this is not a simple system. It's very complex. Uh, absolutely. And and also, uh, according to the EPA, um, 14% of water treated by water systems is lost to leaks. Um, in some systems, that can be as much as 60%. The worldwide average is about 20. And, and that's, you know, that's a huge amount. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit. And we, you know, we've kind of talked about the challenges in the state of the art as it is today, but there are people who are working on some pretty cool stuff that could, in theory, uh, really revolutionize water systems, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, some of, some of the more, some of the more down to earth, I'll cover those first okay. uh, methods. Some, some researchers are talking about the, the simple act of diverting watershed, uh, of the, the physical area of land from which you would get your water. Right. Because, because classically your, your watershed is far away from a city, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing to do with your cities. But in, in these are modern times, we've got so many more people living in urban areas and, um, so much wasted water coming down in rainfall on these large urban areas that if we if we look at at just increasing the system capacity of of cities to deal with that water Mm -hmm. by by replacing concrete with porous pavement, by adding more plant life to cities, by restoring wetlands or or installing rain barrels and um, other building gray water management systems. Right. Yeah. Gray water is one of those things that uh, can be incredibly useful for particular applications. I mean, obviously, it's not something that you would necessarily say, let's hook this up to, to uh, a the, fountain. Yeah. yeah and then I'll drink fountain. and then I'll drink or uh, a bubbler if you prefer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gray, gray water being um, the the. Basically clean wastewater that comes from mild householder or commercial applications. Right. And there's plenty of different uses we could put that to mm-hmm. rather than using. I mean, it, it, it be really used is to water a lawn. Absolutely. It's really crazy to think that we have incredibly fresh water in our toilets. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that drives me completely just, Bonkers, just completely yeah. crazy. When you think that there are two billion people in Asia who do not have access to clean water. And we're using drinking water in our toilets. Yeah. So see, using gray water in a system like that could end up meaning that that water could be used in other uh, applications. Now, obviously, the big problem with the two billion people in Asia is that they don't have the systems in place or the, the resources available to them. It's not just that the Earth has an you know, X amount of fresh water that's evenly distributed across the entire planet. <laughs> like we were saying, yeah, and and you know, it's it's not the kind of thing where you know if if you if you avoid flushing your toilet, that's not going to give water to the poor kids in China. Like, yeah, like it's, it's yeah, like, it's like we said, it's a little more complicated than that. Okay, um, so, but, so that makes sense. Uh, yeah, know? and and some communities are already doing a whole lot for that. Um, we mentioned uh, in in that in that listener mail from Valerie, she she had mentioned Las Vegas's systems, and they mm-hmm. are using a lot of water reclamation. Yeah, in order to to. To stretch um, the water as far as it'll go. Because mm-hmm, they're kind of in a desert. Yeah. So yeah. Not, sort of not one of those areas where they've got, uh, you know, huge reservoirs that are naturally occurring nearby. It's a little tricky. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but Las Vegas is kind of a big city. It's, it's got a few people. There are a few people in it. I'll be there soon enough. Oh, for CES. That's yeah. right. That's coming up. It's kind of exciting. Um, uh, also currently happening, lots of, of new technology in recycling, purification, and desalination. Yeah, we, we've seen things like the, the water reclamation technology that NASA has pioneered has oh, been yeah. amazing. Like, if you look at the stuff they have on the International Space Station, and it's not just NASA, obviously, there are other, uh, space organizations, European space organizations, uh, and uh, Russian space organizations that have all contributed to this kind of body of science and technology. Mm-hmm. But they, Really make water go as far as it possibly can. Ah, uh, right. With the, with the cost of what you know, ten thousand dollars per for pound a, for a pound of stuff of to send stuff, into space. Right. Uh, you know, every every ounce counts. Yeah, you so. don't want to. You don't want to be constantly. Oh, they're thirsty again. Got to lug up <laughs> another hundred pounds of water. Yeah, you know, go to the bank. No, it's it's. You know, they have systems that recapture water from everything from uh, the water vapor in their breath, the sweat. 
urine, things like that. You know, not all of this water necessarily goes right back into drinking water either, but uh-huh. it, it's necessary for the system. So we can learn from that and use those same sort of technologies in various applications here on Earth. Not all of them, obviously. We're not going to have giant water vapor uh uh, condensers out there capturing everyone's <laughs> breath. But, probably, probably not in most buildings. Um, but but uh, uh, you know, I would, I don't know. We might get one in here someday. But if we could, that would be that would be terrible and lovely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, well, I feel like Robert would love a love an art project about that. Um, but but yeah, there's there's lots of really interesting um, materials and membrane sciences, d- different electrical properties of different things. Uh, we, we talked about that a bunch in our forward thinking episode yeah. about desalination, which is of course, an, I mean, that is a, a a nice solution to getting uh, drinking water when you don't have any to fresh water nearby. Yeah, right? yeah. And there, we've also seen some cool filtration systems that can be mm-hmm. used to purify water. Uh, if you have access to water but it's not pure, you can run it through these things. Uh, Dean Kamen worked on one. I know that Bill Gates is really uh, uh, behind technologies that are being developed for developing nations that may have uh, problems getting clean water. And uh, you just you pour this stuff in on one end. And uh, again, gravity pulls the water through the various systems until at the end of it, you get potable drinking water, which is pretty phenomenal stuff. Now, these are are small. They're meant for small communities. They're not you know, something that's going to support an enormous city. Right. And you might need multiple units, depending upon how large the population of that area is. But it's really promising. But but Lauren, I want to know. About a crazy kind of science fiction-y approach to totally renovating the water system. Got anything for me? I, I do, in fact. Um, have, have you heard of 4D printing? Oh my gosh, 4D printing. I remember seeing a devastatingly handsome bald man talk about that on a video not too long ago. Uh, he's kind of narcissistic, though. I don't know. Uh, it's um, okay. It's okay. When you look that good, it's completely justified. There, there was an episode, there was another separate episode of Forward Thinking that was all about 4D printing. And, and this is kind of a kitschy catchphrase, um, but it's we're we're talking about self-assembly, really. Um, so, so okay, MIT has a self-assembly lab that's being run by one Skylar Tibbetts. Great name. Um, <laughs> it is a great name. Um, he's he's an architect, uh, and and comp sci, an artist kind of dude. And um, in in MIT's words, self assembly is a process by which disordered parts build an ordered structure through local interaction. And so, what they're really interested in here is is using material science and biological science to create mostly analog devices that can react to changing situations. Right. So and and usually it means that you're adding some form of energy or introducing some new element to this material, which will then undergo a change in shape or form. Uh, right. This is at a, a really proof of concept kind of stage right yeah. now. They're they're at this at this very basic like they've built a, a long tube that when dropped in water will morph to form the letters MIT. Yeah. And they had uh, they had one flat piece of it looks like just plastic. Mm-hmm. But when you put water on it, it would form itself into a cube. Um, which, yeah. You know, you could watch the video. And then you see that it's sped up by about eight times and you realize, oh, this is a gradual process. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really slow. I mean, all of this is, is thanks to a, a multi-material form of 3D printing mm-hmm. um, and the, the, the 4D in, in the, the, the fourth dimension in, in the 4D title is time. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but so so multi-material 3D printing, since different materials can have different water absorption properties, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can you can. 
build them so that they will squish up in different ways. Right. You got you've got a, an interesting approach where you've got this material that can actually react to changing situations. So if you engineer it so that it behaves a particular way under a particular set of circumstances, there are a lot of applications that you could put this to, including completely revolutionizing a water system. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, anything as huge as as a water system is a really long way off from from a cute little tube that spells out a cute little thing over, over yeah. the course of several minutes. Um, but but, you know, imagine a pipe that changes shape to accommodate spikes in in, in watershed or water waste or frozen water. Right. See, now, this would be amazing because, like we had said over and over again, the water systems we have have formed over several decades and they're not uniform at all. And they, you know, some of the pipes are different sizes than other pipes. And, you know, you might have it where certain parts of a city may have trouble meeting the water needs of that particular part of the city compared to others just because the infrastructure doesn't really support it anymore. Uh, if right. you had pipes that could adjust to the right, to the, to the level of demand, then if the population fluctuated, if it went, you know, got bigger or smaller, the pipes themselves, in theory, could end up adjusting themselves to meet whatever the new demand was. Uh, to, to, to create the optimum water pressure for the amount of people that it needed to serve. Um, or, or what about a pipe that could shift itself to self-repair damage? And even more freaky than that, which is already amazing, the idea of you don't have to worry so much about maintenance because the pipes maintain themselves. And they won't really break because they can just move bits around. It's... Another thing that I think is amazing is this idea of an undulating pipe. Now, this is way off this into super, science fiction future. Right. Absolutely. But but the, the idea of this is that the, the pipe can undulate to push water through itself. So in other words, you don't need pumping stations. You don't even need to worry about gravity anymore. You've got pipes that can change their shape and propel the water through them, providing the water pressure you need. And it's all built into the material itself. You don't have any electronic parts. You don't have you any don't have generators. Right. Yeah. It's just doing it on its own because of the way that it was constructed. And that's really what I find phenomenal. It's not like there's some tiny electronic component inside this stuff. There's it's, no nanobots. No, that, it's literally the it's way physical. it was built. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just it because it was built this way, it will react you know, in X way when Y happens, because in mm -hmm. some cases it's things like kinetic energy, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you, you know, you might have a sheet of this stuff and if you throw it on the ground, it turns into a chair over the course of like 45 minutes. But anyway, like, <laughs> I, th I think the kinetic ones are a little bit quicker. Yeah, they yeah. can be. <laughs> yeah. But that would be, you know, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Now, granted, again, this is sci-fi science stuff. All uh, right. Tibbetts does have a really great TED talk that we'll link to. But but you'll see in, in this TED talk, he, he presents a couple examples of what they're doing right this very moment. And it is much less impressive than we've just made it sound. Um, but, the, uh, but it's still the potential really cool. The is potential phenomenal. Is amazing. Yeah. So, Assuming that we can get it to work. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, what what people wind up doing with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're only, you know, 30 <laughs> to 50 years away. Right, right around the same time that we hit the singularity. Right around the time, yeah. Singularity, robot uprising, and undulating pipes. They're all going to come on a Tuesday. So we'll be recording forward thinking, assuming we're all still around at that point. I mean, I got no plans. So anyway, this was one of those topics I thought was really interesting. You know, it had a historical element to it that was fun to talk about. It has a real impact on us today, right now. And the promise of technology in the future has at least the potential to make it a phenomenally interesting uh, uh, system that we could see 
you know, in a few decades, assuming that, that this is, uh, everything's working out. Obviously, it's a lot of work that we're talking about here, but. Sure. You even just, uh, just, just big data and monitoring techniques, um, getting everyone to work kind of together on this problem, um, I think is going to be huge. Yeah. Using, right. Uh, satellite data to, to, to watch stuff. I mean, satellites can, can detect changes in gravity that therefore detect changes in groundwater concentration. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. I didn't detect any changes in gravity, but I only saw the film once, so I'd have to see it at least one more time before I could tell you what had changed. So if you guys have anything to, t- to say to us about this or other topics... <laughs> Why don't you write to us? Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can find us with the handle techstuffhsw, and Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 